Thank you, Reed, for reading for us and for putting my stand all the way down here. It was really helpful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you've done enough, sir. <laughs> um, my name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor on staff. It's great to be here with you this morning. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we do know that we need your help to hear from you, to understand your word and how it applies to us. Um, and so we do ask, send your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what you have for us this morning together from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Well, again, good morning. Um, and if you've been with us the, the past few weeks this summer, which it's hard to believe summer's like almost over already. It's August next week or something, right? It got me really depressed this morning. Anyway, um, <laughs> but if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been talking about, really, doctrine, the importance of doctrine. Uh, why, does it, why does it really matter what we believe um, is the, kind of the driving question. And today, this morning, we're going to talk about the cross. Does it really matter what we believe about the cross? Does it really matter uh, what we think about Jesus' crucifixion? And uh, this is not a new question by any means. And in fact, I'm sure, I thought about it this week, I'm sure there is no death in history that has been more talked about than Jesus' death. A Jewish peasant who lived in Roman-occupied Palestine 2,000 years ago, his, his death has captured imaginations for thousands of years. People have written whole books on it. People have written songs. We've sung some of them this morning and written poems about this death. People have died for this death. People have dedicated their whole lives to this death. People have dedicated their lives to undermining, explaining away this death. And fundamentally, you, you really cannot live very long in this world without being confronted by this question. And the question is this, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? Uh, every person needs to have an answer to this question. So this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. That question, why did Jesus have to die? And specifically, uh, Paul the Apostle is going to explain why this needed to happen from his uh, letter called Colossians. We just heard a, a portion of it read. And here's the thing. The Christian faith, I can't overstate this, the Christian faith hangs or falls on how we answer this question. Why did Jesus have to die? What is happening on the cross? And if you call yourself a Christian, or if you want to be a Christian, or you want to understand the Christian faith uh, better, Paul, Paul will show us, and here's where we're going, Paul will show us three things, at least three things that we, every Christian needs to see on the cross, every person needs to see on the cross, if it's to make any sense at all. Three things we need to see on the cross. And here they are. Well, I'll give you the first one. The first one is this. For the cross to make any sense to you at all, you've got to see this. The first thing you need to see, you've got to see you on the cross. When you see the cross, you've got to see you. And let me explain. I'm getting this really from verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2. If you haven't turned there yet, you can do that now. Colossians chapter 2. In verse 13, Paul says this. He says, and you, and that's us, okay? And you, you who were dead in your trespasses. That's how he addresses us this morning. And this word trespass that Paul uses, uh, it's almost interchangeable with the idea of debt. Trespass and debt. And if you... You've recited the Lord's Prayer ever, if you've been raised in that tradition. Um, it's, some versions say, forgive us our trespasses, and others say, forgive us our debts. Okay, very similar ideas. So what Paul's, another way of saying what Paul's saying, he's saying, you're, you who are dead in your debt, 
You're dead in your debt. Now, we live in a society of debt. There are lots of studies and articles out there about how toxic uh, debt is uh, to our culture in many ways. Uh, you know, student debt going up, mortgage debt, credit card debt, public debt, and the effects that that has on uh, not just societies, but on, on individuals, right? We, we've, we've seen that, especially in the last few years. I remember getting my first job out of school, and it was this huge transition, right, into adulthood, because I wasn't just spending money, I was actually making money now. It wasn't a lot, but I was making money. And uh, I, I was so happy when I got that first check, until the moment I realized that half of this is going to pay off debt, <laughs> And then I had to put that PlayStation back or whatever it was that I wanted. I don't know what it was, but I'm sure it was useless, whatever it was. But, right, it was, it, it was a depressing feeling. There's a weightiness to debt. There's a weightiness to it, to living with debt. And for those of you who live in, under a lot of debt or you've, you have in the past, you know that feeling. You, it, it's, there's a weight on you all the time. But Paul here isn't talking about uh, financial debt. He's talking about a moral debt. It's a moral debt. He's saying that we all are in the, we're all in the red when it comes to our moral lives, our ethical decisions. In a similar way, we are in financial debt, we're in moral debt. And we, when we are all under the incredible weight of our moral debt. In fact, Paul says, this debt, this weight of debt is actually killing us. That's why he says, you who are dead in your debt, it's that bad. We're dying under the weight, we're dead in our debts. And we have, a, we have an English word for that feeling of weight and pressure uh, when, under our own moral failings. When we feel that, we have a word for that feeling, and that word is guilt. Guilt. And you know you are living in moral debt. We all know it because somewhere deep down we all feel guilt. There's really nothing more universal. There's nothing more common to the human experience. It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, how old you are even, than this feeling of guilt. Right? We all have it. And the first thing we see is you've got to see you on the cross because you're guilty. We're guilty. And uh, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian, if you've ever heard of him. Um, I'm not sure what his religious convictions are today, but he was raised Catholic. And uh, he recently wrote a book on parenting. It's a humorous book. It's called Dad is Fat, um, <laughs> which is just funny in and of itself. Um, where he talks about this universal experience of guilt and how it even tends to get worse in different stages of life. He says... I wasn't ready for the guilt of being a parent. And there are parents out there saying, yeah, me neither. Um, I was raised Catholic, said Gaffigan, so guilt is a familiar friend. Um, <laughs> guilt, he says, is as much a part of the Catholic culture I was a part of as is rooting for Notre Dame. And uh, I grew up with, he says, I grew up with a God is watching you, so you better not make him mad mentality. And I felt guilty for feeling good and for feeling bad and for feeling nothing. Attending confession was supposed to alleviate some of the guilt, but I always ended up feeling guilty for not telling the priest everything I feel guilty about, so I stopped going to confession. <laughs> then I felt guilty that I stopped going to confession, and then he kind of summarizes, he says, that's a lot of guilt. He says, just when I thought that nothing could top Catholic guilt, I became acquainted with parent guilt, which totally puts Catholic guilt to shame. <laughs> he, he concludes, sorry, Catholic guilt. Now I feel guilty for shaming you. <laughs> Well, at least now you know how I feel. And that's how he finishes that thought, right? Guilt. Sometimes we have to laugh at it to explain it away, but we all, it was universal. We all believe in guilt. We believe in it, right? You, you cannot believe in God. You cannot believe in the Bible. You cannot believe in Jesus. You cannot believe in the afterlife. But you just can't, you can't not believe in guilt. 
Everybody feels guilt. Everybody. And here's the thing. Here's the secret that, in, in my opinion, our society and culture, we're just so afraid to admit. We're so afraid to admit this. Most of the guilt that we feel is right. Now, certainly there are times and circumstances where the guilt we feel is unhealthy, it's unwarranted, we shouldn't feel it. But for most of us, most of the time, our guilt is meant to point us to the truth of a real moral debt that we have. It's real. And we've worked very hard as a society to deny what I've just said. We, we deny our guilt. We deny our guilt by, by accepting ourselves, right? Flaws and all. It's like, this is just who I am. And if you, can't get, if you can't accept me, then I don't want to be your friend. Or we deny our guilt with busyness so we never have to hear that little voice inside that's always saying, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. We run away from that voice. Now, there was a time and a, and a place where people more or less trusted their guilt. This hasn't always been this way. It was a sign of, of moral health and depth uh, that you could really look in the mirror and know yourself. But we don't do that anymore because we've convinced ourselves that our guilt is a sign of emotional immaturity. See, mature people don't feel guilt because they've dealt with their issues. Uh, they don't let the church or other institutions tell them how to live so they don't feel guilty. They've gotten over what, how their parents raised them. I don't feel guilt anymore, right? Guilt is not to be trusted. But the problem is that you, you cannot suppress your guilt. You can't do it for very long. We've tried. We really have. And we are, I think in many ways, because of that, we are the most addicted and overworked society in human history. We're running away from something. You can pay someone $100 an hour, an hour to tell you, hey, oh, deep down you're okay. You can do that. But you know, we all know that that's not true. We know it. We all live life, whether we can admit it out loud, as if there is a, there's like a warrant out for your arrest. You ever feel that way? Someone's, looking, someone's coming after. Something's going to catch up with you. Right? It's like there's this literal um, record floating around out there somewhere with everything you've ever done on it, everything you, you hope no one ever sees. It's on there. And Paul uses that image in this passage. He says in verse 14 that we, have all, we all have a record of debt against us. That's the language he uses. There's a record of debt. And we know we're supposed to be paying this thing down, but we just can't do it. No matter how hard we try, that balance goes up and up and up. And even if you don't believe in the Bible, even if you don't accept God's moral standards for your life, you know you are morally bankrupt, okay? I know we're in church, uh, but for just a second, forget the Bible, okay? Forget, forget it for a second. You're all like, this is the worst preacher ever. I, 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 trust me, just for one second. Uh, imagine there's an invisible tape recorder around your neck right now. And I, we got this image from Francis Schaeffer. He's a Christian author and thinker. He says, imagine a tape recorder around your neck. It's invisible. And all it's doing is recording every time you tell someone else you should or you should not. So every time you look at someone else and you say, you should do this or you should not do that. It's recording it. It's keeping it. It's saving it all the time. And, and now imagine with me right now in this moment if it just started playing out loud. Right? And you heard in vivid detail everything in your heart that you know is right and you know is wrong because you've used it against other people. You know these things. 
And someone said to you while this is playing, you are going to be judged simply by what is on this recorder, and everyone here is going to hear it and hold you accountable for it. Can you imagine that? If you think too hard about it, you'll end up getting a pit in your stomach just thinking about that happening. And that pit in your stomach is your guilt. It's your shame. You and I are guilty, and we know it. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. You don't even have to trust the Bible to know this is true. Can you imagine adding God's standards to that tape recorder? His legal demands that Paul mentions in verse 14? Add that to the tape recorder. We, we don't just feel guilty. We are guilty. We are guilty. Your guilt is real. It's just as real as this music stand in front of me. And when you look at the cross, you've got to see you. You've got to see the reality of your guilt. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. We also know intrinsically, just, just we, we all know this, that we're going to have to pay up for what we've done. We're going to have to pay. And the only way life makes sense is if there's a reckoning, right? A balancing of accounts. A judgment day. There's a lot of ways, a lot of ways to put that. There was recently an article in Science 2.0. It's a, it's a blog. I found it fascinating. Uh, it's not written by a Christian person, as far as I can tell. Not a religious person. Uh, and it was titled, Scientists Discover That Atheists Might Not Exist. And that's not a joke. That was the title, uh, which I really liked. Um, and uh, the author, basically, he's, I think he, he studies neuroscience, and so he primarily leans there. But he also he pulls in all these other disciplines, uh, psychology, uh, literature, literary studies, to demonstrate, he's summarizing this, to demonstrate that what we're finding in every human person is this, is this universal principle. It's in every person and every society. On every human conscience, it's the principle of retribution or payback. That you get, in the end, you get what you deserve. And there's a sense that, that it's imprinted on every human conscience, every one of us. And he puts it this way when he's talking about the world's great literary work and how it demonstrates this principle. He says, The fundamental basis of stories appears to be the link between the moral decisions made by the hero and the same hero's ultimate destiny. That's the fundamental element of every story. The payback is always appropriate to the choices made. And an unnamed, unidentified mechanism ensures that this is so. And it is a fundamental element of stories. And he says in parentheses, perhaps the fundamental element of stories. If a tale ended with Harry Potter being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on his grave, some of you think that's funny, which is disturbing. But <laughs> he says the audience would be horrified, of course, but also very confused because that's just not what happens in stories. We know that's true of good stories, don't we? And we know it's true of our story. We know deep down. There has to be payment. There is a record of debt out there against us, and it's not for the archives. It's for the collector's office. We know that. And you've got to see you on the cross because the cross, more than anything else, is the cross is the Bible's picture. It is God's <clears throat> excuse me, graphic display of the reality of your guilt, of sin, of transgression, and the payment that those things demand. That's what the cross is. So that you can see outside what you know is true inside. And there's a reason that every gospel account of the crucifixion, Jesus is executed, you'll notice, between two criminals, two thieves, two rebels, 
to transgressors. This is not just an historical detail that they wanted to add. It is a moral bedrock truth that they're trying to teach us because it's a picture of us. They are a picture of us. It's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. You are the criminal condemned to die because that is the payment for the debt. You've got to see you on the cross because the Bible will always point you there. And when you read these accounts, these gospels, when you picture the cross, when you imagine Jesus there 2,000 years ago, the Bible screams at you at every page, your name here. Your name here. And if you cannot accept that truth, that's too much. If you, if you cannot see yourself on the cross first, you will never accept Christianity, you will never accept grace, you will never accept Jesus, because you can't do it until you feel the reality of your debt. The reality of your guilt and the payment you owe. You've got to see, when you see the cross, you've got to see your name and your record above the crucified Jesus. You've just got to do it. Now, the reality of this debt is not just our problem. It is our problem, but it's not just our problem. It is also, according to the Bible, it is God's problem. And you see, the story of Scripture is God doesn't want it this way. The state of affairs we find ourselves in is not how He wanted it. He created us, He wants to be with us. And when we sinned, as the other pastor Andrew put a few weeks ago, and I know we just got to stop hiring Andrews, so um, it's, on the, it's, it's on a docket. I'm just kidding, Andrew. I see him back there. We love you, buddy. Um, as Andrew taught so well a few weeks ago, sin ruined that intimacy. It ruined what God wanted of his world. But the truth is, we didn't just offend God in a legal, moral sense, like we've been saying, though we did do that. We didn't just do that. We, we deeply hurt him when we sinned. Because he wanted intimacy. He wanted friendship. He wanted to be with us. And this state of affairs is not what he wants. Now, this is his problem too, and it's a, re- it's a real problem. Because God cannot, he cannot wave a magic wand and erase your debt. He can't do that. God is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is all-loving, but he cannot do this. And uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, he puts it so well. He says, God can say, let there be light. He's quoting Genesis here. God can say, let there be light, and there was light. He can say, let there be sky, and there was sky. <clears throat> he can say, let there be life, and there can be life. But what God cannot say is, let there be forgiveness, and there be forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. Now, I know it's controversial to say God can't do something, but this is, this is biblical truth. God cannot be just. He cannot be God worthy of worship and ignore the tremendous evil in our hearts and in the world. He cannot do it, and we would not have him if he did. And here's how. Imagine a proven convicted murderer is brought before a judge, and he says to this judge, I'm really sorry for what I did. And the judge responded, oh, great. Then you can go free. What would you say to that judge? You would say, that's not just. You would say that what this person, it doesn't matter how they feel. What matters is what they did. This is real. This is real transgression. It must be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be shoved under the rug. Now, how much more can the judge of the universe not ignore the debt, the crime of humanity? He cannot do it and be worthy of our worship. This is a real problem. How can God account for the crime, which he must do, 
without destroying the world and the people that he loves so much? This is the question driving the entire plot of the Bible from beginning to end. That question. What's he going to do? And that's why it's not enough to simply see yourself on the cross. It's not enough to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to just see you on the cross. You cannot just see you on the cross. At the same time, you must also see God himself on the cross. That's point two. You have to see God on the cross. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul doesn't ever talk about Jesus as being an innocent man who died on a cross. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he says of Jesus, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in chapter 1, verse 15 of Colossians, it's one of those beautiful scripture in the New Testament. Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, that's Jesus. So when you see Jesus dying on the cross, rejected and alone, you aren't looking at a Jewish rabbi. You aren't looking at an innocent man with a failed ministry. You are looking at the designer, the creator, the sustainer of the entire universe being tortured to death. That's what you're seeing. You're looking at the all-powerful made completely powerful, powerless for you. You are looking at the Son of God completely cut off from his Father. You are looking at the maker of all things being undone. Not simply dying, but experiencing hell itself on the cross. Why? Why is he doing this? Why did God have to die? Well, Paul tells us in verses 13 and 14, he says, And you who were dead in your debt and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. And this is basic Christian understanding of the cross. It is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid off my debt, all of my debt, with his very life. John Stott is a British preacher and pastor, and he puts it so well. I can't think of a better way to put it. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And hold that thought for a second. You see, every wrongdoing, every trespass, every sin adds to our moral debt that we feel, that IOU we know we have to pay to someone. But what puts our debt over the top and the real essence of sin, according to the Bible, is that we all impersonate God. It's not just that we, we have sins. It's that we impersonate God. God, uh, we all fail to acknowledge that God is our creator and that he has all authority over who we are, what we do, what we have. All authority. But we live our lives like we are in charge. What we do with our money and with our bodies and with our talent and skill, whatever we feel like doing, not whatever he wants. And, and listen, you, you go to jail for impersonating a police officer, right? I hope you know that. Uh, don't go out and do that. If you impersonate a, a police officer, you'll go to jail. Why? Isn't that just funny? No, because society cannot function with people running around pretending to, to have authority that they don't have. That's dangerous. It's a serious crime. How much more serious an offense for the universe is it when people run around impersonating God? Acting like we have his authority when we do not. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, says Stott. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He puts it another way. Because we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, 
He put himself where only we deserve to be. You see, substitution. Substitution. His life for mine. My disobedience for his obedience. His purity for my depravity. His beauty for my ugliness. God taking our place on the cross is the heart of the good news. There's simply no way to understand the cross or faith or life with Jesus without this concept of substitution. It's essential. That is why in our statement of faith as a denomination, we affirm this truth. We believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute, there it is, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Jesus cancels our debt. He nails them to the cross. It's not enough to simply see your name above Jesus when he's crucified. To be a Christian, you must read at the very same moment and in an equally penetrating and powerful way. You must see Jesus and all that he is, his perfection, his obedience, his holiness. You must see God himself below your name. You must see your name above him, but you must see him for who he is below your name. Taking your guilt, taking your shame, taking your debt, wiping it away by his sacrifice. Now, we have to pause here for a second and and say two things, because many people, when they first hear this, this understanding of the cross, they struggle, and and lots of misconceptions come up as a way to explain, uh, basically to make the good news that we have just shared less good. (laughs) Um, And I want to address two of these misconceptions. The first is, this picture of the cross, sometimes people think that makes God sound like a divine child abuser who takes out his anger on his son in order to save the world. But this completely ignores what the Bible teaches about who God is. God is Trinity. And I don't have time to explain how that all works, but Jesus is God the Son. And from the foundation of the world, as Paul taught, Jesus knew and willingly chose to be sacrificed for our rebellion. And you cannot miss this point in the gospel accounts. Jesus goes willingly to the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. And he goes there anyway. This is not father abusing a son. This is God sacrificing himself for us. Okay, misconception one. Number two. This misconception says that Jesus dies simply, and this is a little convoluted, but that Jesus dies simply as a picture or a metaphor of how much God really loves us. God didn't have to die on the cross. Our sin wasn't that bad. He chose to die on the cross to show us how much he truly loves and accepts us, and it's kind of like a grand, divine, over-the-top romantic gesture. It's really not necessary, but it really shows how much he loves us. And that sounds great on paper until you actually try to apply it to your life. And here's why. If you were in a community group last year, you know we used an excerpt of Tim Keller, his thinking here, and, and this is the analogy that he gave, and it's so helpful. He says, if you're walking with a friend by a river and your friend says, hey, this is how much I love you, and he jumps into the river and drowns, is your response, oh, look how much he loved me. No, it's what an idiot. Like, that was stupid. That was worthless. That was unnecessary. That's not good news, is it? But, same scenario, but this time you're drowning in that river. Right? There's something killing you. You're unable to save yourself. Your friend jumps in and saves you but dies in the process. That is love. There is no greater love than that. That's the good news. Not that God loved that, not that God, simply that God loved us, but that he paid our debt. You must see 
You on the cross, okay, you are drowning in your sin, in your guilt, in your shame. God jumped in and saved you. And it cost him everything. Everything. And when you're able to hold both of these pictures in your mind, your debt, and God paying it for you through his son, this becomes, this picture of the cross becomes a tremendous hope for those who repent and believe, not simply because it explains how sins are dealt with in this legal sense, but it explains how far God would go to save you. And it explains how you can live a completely different kind of life as a Christian. It explains everything else about how Christians are supposed to live, this teaching of the cross. And this is the third thing that every believer must see on the cross to live a different kind of life. You have to see your life unleashed, freed on the cross. Your life is unleashed because your debts cannot condemn you. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, If you've been around long enough, you know that your debts, you know that your mistakes and your sins, they have this way of rising up and talking to you, don't they? Right? It's like they slither up on your shoulder at the worst possible moment and they whisper things to you. They say, not good enough. They say, not worthy. They say, ugly. They say, sinner. They say, loser. They say disgusting. They say filthy. They say, if, he, if they only knew, right? If he only knew what you're really thinking, if she only knew what you've really done, what you're really capable of, you'd never be loved. You'd never be accepted, right? Have you ever had that voice? Human life is lived under the condemnation of our debts. They condemn And everyone lives with those voices and there's something real and satanic about them. How they come up in our lives like like a bile in our mouth and we can't get rid of them. But in Christ, those voices, that they may not go away, but they cannot condemn. They have been triumphed over. They have been put to shame. That's why Paul says in verse 15, Jesus has triumphed over the powers and the authorities of condemnation. You are no longer when you repent and trust in Jesus' sacrifice, you are no longer under the weight of guilt because what gave those voices power over you was that record of debt, and it's gone. When you believe in Jesus, that record of debt has been canceled, no matter what the issue, no matter what was written on your record of debt, pride, pornography, sexual addiction, envy, jealousy, hatred, adultery, greed, uh, guilt, deep, deep shame, whatever it is, it has been paid in full and then some. That's the promise of Christ. And that record of debt, as real as it was, it's canceled, it's nailed to the cross. It has no power over you ever again. In this English translation, um, they're struggling to get across the power of this word that Paul uses, canceled. He canceled the record of debt. When I hear that, I think of something being uh, you know, written, canceled on it, it gets filed away for the next time. I, I, need, I need something. <laughs> um, the Greek behind this word is so much better than that. Uh, back, in, back in school, there were years in which I felt like all I ever did was study flashcards for Greek and Hebrew, and uh, you literally had to carry them around with you like a total loser um, on a little keychain or something. Um, but uh, I, I hated them at the time, but there's something about having that tangible reminder that you see over, even something you, you think you already know, it pushes it deeper and deeper into you. That's why we use flashcards. 
So today we thought we, could, we would uh, try something. We, we made a Greek vocab card for you. Uh, I, we placed them at the end of, the, of your rows, uh, I think on both sides. If you could grab the pile and start sending them toward the middle so that everyone gets one. If for some reason we run out in your, in your row, we have more at the Welcome Center desk out here, so grab one before you leave. And here is the one Greek word I want you all to know and memorize and put somewhere important in your life. Put, put this card somewhere where you're going to see it over and over and over again. It's exalepho. Exalepho on one side. And on the other side, the definition, to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence, to, to eliminate, to do away with, to wipe out completely. Okay? That's what Jesus has done with our sins, our record of debt. When we come to Jesus, we're not just given a clean slate. Like, hey, start over. It's not like that. The record of debt itself is obliterated. The evidence is gone forever. Every shameful mistake, every failure, and your debts past and present and future, they cannot condemn you. They've been paid for. Like the old hymn says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. You see, that's the Christian life right there. And the life that is free from this condemnation is free. It is unleashed to live the good life, not out of duty, but out of joyful response to what God has done. And that is a completely different kind of life than anyone else lives. Joy empowered, not guilt empowered. Now maybe some of you are thinking, Andrew, you don't know what I've done. This all sounds great in theory. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know the lie I just told. You don't know what I'm capable of. Now, all of that's true. I don't know that. But God does. And I know he promised, if you belong to Jesus, your slate is wiped clean. It's destroyed. There's nothing left to condemn you. There is nothing you can do that is outside the grace of Christ. If you turn to him in faith, if you rely on his sacrifice, there is nothing God does not know already about you and that he, can, he is not ready to forgive and wipe clean if we simply allow him to do so. Your debts cannot condemn you. And here's the thing, if your debts can't condemn you anymore, then neither can death itself condemn you. Death itself cannot condemn you. Remember, death is the consequence of sin. They always go together. Read the Bible front to back. They always go together, death and sin. Our debt wasn't the only thing God needed to fix he needed to defeat death because that was never a part of the plan. That's, never, that's why every human being fears death, grieves death, hates death, because we weren't made for it. It's also why the story of the cross does not end in Jesus' death, but in his resurrection from the dead. That is why Paul is so adamant in Colossians to remind us in verse 12 that we were not simply buried with Jesus in baptism, we were raised with him to new life. You cannot just see yourself nailed to the cross with Jesus. You've got to see yourself coming out of the tomb with him. Death is dead forever. And where the world lives constantly under the fear of death, and that is true, constantly under the fear of death, the fear that the moment is all that we have, that this is as good as it gets, that we can live a life, we as Christians can live a life unleashed from the fear of death. Completely different kind of life. And where the world grieves the loss 
of death as if it has the final word over every human person. We can grieve as those with a tremendous hope that God, and not death, has the final word in our lives. And he proved it in his son Jesus. And where the world is silenced before death, silence. And I, I've been to funerals of people who had no faith, who didn't believe they were going anywhere, and no one there believed this person who died went on to anything other than the casket that they were in. I've been, and the people who come, and they have nothing to say. There's nothing to say. Silence. Where the world is silenced by death, we can say to death, along with Paul, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death cannot condemn you. And if your debt and your death cannot condemn you, then you are free to live life under the banner of Jesus' victory for you, which Paul summarizes so well in Romans 8. And here's what he says. He says, who is left to condemn? No one. For it is Christ Jesus as the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, because in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, nothing, nothing left to condemn when you see the cross for what it truly is. There's no better news. There's no better word. There's nothing better to say to you this morning than the word of the cross. Let's pray. Father, make us people who see the cross for what it truly is. A picture of us, a picture of our debt, of our brokenness. But also a picture of you and your son's amazing sacrifice and a reminder of hope that there is no one in heaven and on earth left to condemn, that even death itself has no power over us. May our lives be set free, unleashed to do your will because of this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.